Before we start this new edition of The Final Word, some words for our dear friends at Future Talent Sports Cards, Jeff. It's their final week with us. They've spent three months telling their story through The Final Word. And what a great story it is about the customised sports cards that you can acquire through their wonderful website at futuretalent.com.au. The discount we've been offering throughout, which we'll come to in a moment. But we just wanted to start the show with a word of thanks to Future Talent. They've been a great addition to The Final Word over the last few months. We've come to the end of our journey. Uh, future talent, will it be past talent? No, it won't. It will always be looking to the future because they're all about the kiddies, the youngs, folks, the, the older folks who still have a future. Some of us, you know, are, are not kids anymore, but the future is still there. And uh, and that's what that's what they're all about, the talent, the future, putting them together. If you're new to the show, if this is your first time listening, I, I better tell you what they do. They, they make customised sports cards, so the cards you might be familiar with when you were growing up that you may have collected, they make them. They're outstanding. The same quality quality as you'd be familiar with but the photos you put on the front are customised and the information, biographical information on the back, you can do whatever you want in turn it makes it a wonderful gift but better still a wonderful prize to give out on presentation night and we've said this time and again Jeff but participation trophies are trash, all they do is end up in the bin, these will not end up in the bin if you're thinking about what to do in March at the end of cricket season, do this, futuretalent.com.au if you pop the final word in at the at the uh, pay bar you get a 15% discount, great result, they're 5 star rated at Google five-star rated at Facebook. Heath Evans, who runs the operation there, is one of the, the best people you'll ever come across. It's a great opportunity to get a bit of a discount and do something a little bit different this presentation night. And you can say to the website, I've got a code to put in you at the pay bar, the pay bar, <laughs> pay bar. Let's start a war, start a nuclear war at the pay bar, pay bar, pay bar. Uh, <laughs> um, look, the only thing that Future Talent need to do that they haven't done yet is acquire the copyright to Stimarol gum. And, yes. and start manufacturing that again. And if they could whack a stick of Stimarol in with every card, then they would have the um, the retro market sewn up. I think I think they had to stop putting the gum in the footy cards back in the day. I have a feeling that, I mean, we were young enough, or rather we were old enough to be the last generation of that brand of footy card, aren't we? Because they ended in about, what, 90, mm. 91 or something like that. So I remember yep. getting the chewing gum, but I think from, if I recall correctly, there was some hygienic reason why they, they couldn't continue with that, but who knows? The world's changed a lot in the last 30 years. Maybe we can have a, a stick of gum uh, with the future talent cards. Indeed, I'm sure Heath would chuck in a pack of chewy uh, with the cards uh, as he puts them in the mail, if that's what you prefer, if, if different strokes and blokes and, and all that. Um, just just a little extra, that would be, if you got some free chewing gum. Nice. Um, look, it, it was around the era when they also had to take the red tip off, off the Big Boss cigars and, and rebrand them as Big Boss Dynamite because you weren't allowed to have kids smoking fake cigars. Yeah, and, and also... It, that was different times. And also the fags, fads revolution, which would have been when we were in primary mm. school as well, the red tip off those off those sticks. If anyone's listening outside of probably Melbourne, they'll have no idea what we're talking about. That's fine. We, we don't no, mind that. If, that's not unusual if, 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 for this if, show. If you're outside of Melbourne, though, you can still jump on futuretalent.com.au. Heath will deliver overseas. Drop him a line on the email and explain where you're from, what your club's from, that you're from the final word. He'll make that happen. If your delivery is inside Australia, you'll have them printed and delivered within five days. It's, it's uh, less and a buck a card um, as I say uh, it's perfect for presentation nights they've been wonderful supporters of what we're doing here at the final word we're going to work with them again in 2020 when we create our what are we doing again we're doing the final word set of cards so everyone that's been on mm. the final word will get a card but that's for later for now we're talking to you specifically at local footy clubs netball clubs cricket clubs whatever it is uh, in the community who, who do presentation nights future talents the place to go 
and and they'll deliver a lot faster than we deliver final word t-shirts which we still haven't done <laughs> but we will we promise <laughs> thank you again Heath Evans let's do a show yes let's do a show thanks guys at futuretalent.com.au the final words of the code thank you so much for your involvement indeed let's get on with the show I had to go about it write it out This is the final word with Adam Collins and back by my side, well, at least across the computer screen after a, a few weeks away, recharging the batteries. Welcome back, Jeff Lemon. Thank you, Adam. Well, what a pleasure it is to be back. I, I suppose I, I haven't been completely away orally because I've been there in a couple of pre-recorded clips, but, um, but you know, I, I felt like maybe maybe the mother in Don't Tell Mum the Babysitter's Dead uh, while I was away on holiday leaving the podcast in the hands of you and Daniel Norcross and not not knowing what would be happening. I, I even resisted the urge to listen because I thought just just let them let them do what they're doing. Don't don't get involved. Um, you know, don't don't worry about the tangents that might be going down and um, and. So so I have no idea what you did with the show while I was away, but hopefully we still have some people listening. So you've enjoyed a good break and, and as I said, recharged your batteries and did all the things that one must do on holiday, which is included for you, of course. Being a holiday, you had to spend some time in hospital, as is the custom. Uh, our friend and uh, and Cam, and um, and colleague from The Final Word during the, the Ashes series, Cam Fink, once said to me that, Jeff, you see, he uses the emergency room like most people use the GP. So you've added to that throughout the course of your holiday. <laughs> I resent that description. Um, I, I will. I did have my first ambulance ride in, in Japan, um, and and that was fun. And uh, I, I will say, when when they rocked up, they said, "Okay, what's wrong with this guy?" And my my friend said, "Oh, you know, bad fever." And and the the ambos sort of looked at each other like, "Oh God!" And then they popped a thermometer in me, and then the looks on their faces just changed completely. And they're like, "Oh, he, we we need to go!" <laughs> like straight in the back, and off we went. So it was. Um, I was staying in a place where everybody got influenza. It was in a mountain town where it was very cold and there's just like a residual pocket of the virus that hangs around there. And so uh, I haven't seen a winter in, what, about eight years. So yeah. um, never occurred to me to get a flu shot. Why would I get a flu shot? So I got the flu instead, the, the proper kind. The um, uh, Thankfully not, you know, any of the swine or avian variants. Yes, but, good. But the proper type A. Um, so, look, it's just part of my travelling experience is to check out the the medical systems. I've been hospitalised in uh, <laughs> Colombia, not for the reasons you might imagine, but um, Colombia, Argentina, New Zealand, <laughs> India, the United States, Australia, and Japan. <laughs> now, Complete the set. Added that one to the list. This is uh, yeah, this is Carmen San Diego stuff. Um, which which uh, which hospital can which country's hospitals can you? <laughs> You can you be you be well placed to write a paper at some point on the on the compa- comparative advantages of the public health systems in each country. Uh, maybe one for the future. I'm frankly amazed that I still get travel insurance. To be honest, like, <laughs> I can still get a policy, which is which is remarkable, really. But um, oh, well done. It's 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 interesting to check out those places and, and see what's going on. And it, it has been necessary each time. There've been some broken bones and some you know some motor accidents and various other things in there. Who it's 
Interesting things happen to interesting people. That's the way I'd like to look at it. Uh, well said. Yeah, thanks to Dan Norcross, as you say. He sat in the chair for the last couple of weeks. It was a lot of fun recording with Dan, uh, with uh, his beautiful wife, Catherine, in the next room, waiting for us to finish while we carried on for about three hours in between recording, uh, as is the custom with Dan, having several cigarettes along the way and all the rest of it. So it was heaps of fun, though. If you were listening um, to the start of the last two shows, you might be wondering where we're up to in the Second World War. Now, Jeff, I'll try and avoid going through this in great depth. I gather you've been um, briefed by your old man as to broadly what we've been doing but over several lunches and dinners uh, in the UK through the long and dark winter we've been plotting uh, where different uh, milestones uh, from the winter fit into the brutality of World War Two, uh, because six years of World War Two, six years of the England winter, you kind of mm. you know can can join the dots there. And as Dan pointed out on the, on the first of his uh, two stints on the show, the obsession with World War Two uh, in this country, it's only right to, to compare everything to it at the moment. You would have saw what happened overnight, I'm sure, as Britain left the EU. Anyway, parking that. So th- where we're up to uh, now is we're in we're in, in July 1943, Dan informs me, um, which is uh, when the Germans evacuate themselves from Sicily. From a Mm -hmm. cricket perspective, uh, Hedley Verity, the famous England spinner from uh, the interwar period, who of course had such a fabulous record against Don Bradman, uh, he died in this week of 1943 in Italy as well. Um, So there's that that cricket, sad, tragic cricket hook to to that, that he didn't get back home, Mm -hmm. uh, having of course played test cricket between, I think it was 1930 and 1939, played in the, the Bodyline series and yeah, as I said, had a great record against Bradman. For, for Australian listeners, Dan says, at around 11pm on Thursday, the Americans wipe out 150 Japanese planes in New Guinea. So, well, there you go. Plenty still going Is on. Is that the Battle of the Coral Sea? Or? Yeah, I, I wonder whether... Well, in New Guinea, though, would it would have... Would that... Well, it's just, just off, off. I think that was between New Guinea and Bougainville. Right. Uh, there, right. Thereabouts. Oh, and one more here. He's got the Bulgarian King Boris III dies after a meeting with Hitler. And the Danish got on Friday on, on the next day, so on, on Friday. So we're, yep. we're, of course, each day uh, lasts twelve days in in Dan's alternate universe here. So mm-hmm. um, we're into August two, uh, 1943 when when referring to that meeting. Uh, the Danish scuttle their own navy to avoid the Germans using it. It also happened on that day. Mm-hmm. And in the next week or so, the Allies will storm into mainland Italy. What did Churchill say? Um, uh, they thought it was going to be the soft underbelly, but it was a tough old gut of Italy. So uh, I suppose that's going to be a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a more difficult uh, a difficult uh, little period and they may have thought on paper. Alas, uh, thanks to Dan for still being part of the show. You'll hear more from him probably when uh, when uh, my partner Rach has the baby in the next couple of weeks. That's the other update uh, from my end. We're now getting right towards the finish line. So when I um, take a couple of weeks of paternity leave, so to speak, it'll be Dan back in the chair with Jeff as we march towards uh, VE Day uh, and the start of the of the uh, of the county championship over here in the Northern Summer. So um, another thank you for last week uh, to Dan Christian for making himself available at a very busy time of year through the Big Bash. Speaking to you and I, um, it was fairly timely in the end. I didn't mean for it to come out in the week of the twenty first, or sorry, rather the the twenty sixth of January, but. Um, I'm, I'm glad we were able to have that conversation with him and it went really well as far as the response I got on social media and so forth. So, yeah, thanks to Dan for contributing to that conversation and being such a leader in the Indigenous community and bringing, um, bringing the game uh, to more people than it ever has before. Pleasure to talk to Dan Christian a few weeks ago. Um, I was just wondering about the Danish. If you know, if you invaded Denmark, would they sabotage the pastries by taking the apricot out of the <laughs> middle of each one? 
uh, thus just <laughs> leaving you with a boring bland pastry husk that's god that would be a real morale sapper i'll tell you a real, a real, a real, um, a real fake breakfast the danish isn't it when you, I, I don't know how you feel jeff but mm. when i'm presented with the option of a of a free breakfast which you're never going to knock back and if it's a danish i I, I, I just don't feel it works I, I need something more I need something that I can spread some Vegemite on or Marmite on yeah it's it's not a it's not a breakfast it's not really a cake it's it's just halfway in between everything yeah. it's an imposter food to be honest <laughs> not a dessert not a meal unsatisfying in every way the Danish so probably just as well they did scuttle their navy but yes I think uh, we're the number one cricket podcast in Denmark I should have it may not be after this week having yeah. had a quick poke at, well. a poke through the, the, the charts a, a week or two ago that, that did stick out that in Denmark we're, we're top of the pops so um, sorry about that to our handful of Danish listeners well you've got to face reality <laughs> Danish listeners I mean I, I'm not going to lie to you we're not going to coddle you we're, we we appreciate you being on this ride with us we love you and respect you but respect includes honesty respect includes being truthful even when it's uncomfortable and that's our commitment on the final word and that is what we will well do. That, that's a that's a respect and honesty and uh, is what we're gonna i'm sure get from your man thought when we talk to him on the show today uh, he mm-hmm. is a very passionate uh, south african uh, broadcaster journalist and uh, historian on the game uh, but um, South African cricket is in, in a spot of bother at the moment uh, after their loss to England 3-1 in the Test Series, which wrapped up this week. We'll, we'll chat to Manners uh, in a more in-depth way about South African cricket because I, I feel as though, Jeff, um, and we'll come to this, in, as I say, in more depth later, but from an Australian perspective, the last time we saw South Africa bob up seriously was uh, when they flogged Australia in, in the Sandpaper Series a, a couple of years ago. To think that's where they were and this is mm. now where they are, a lot's happened and a lot's going on uh, and I think, yeah, there's a few, a few gaps that need filling in. Yeah, I mean, for, to to turn around a, a 1-0 deficit, thrash Australia 3-1 the way they did, you know, they they looked like a, an impregnable team and a couple of years later they look flawed in, in every format, really, um, the, the way they crashed in the 50-over World Cup and the way they've um, fallen to bits in, in Test cricket in recent times. So we will talk to Neil Manthorpe and get his view on that. But you've been watching those test matches between England and South Africa. I have not. <laughs> and so I'm not even going to pretend to, to have brushed up on it because I haven't. Let's, I've been on holiday. I, I literally got back in the country, what, a day before we recorded this show and I've been asleep for the entire time. So I am going to play the audience in, in this part of the relationship, Adam. Um, and you can you can give me a 30-second summary if you want. Oh. Um, and then you can you walk me through what happened. Tell me what, what grabbed your watchful eye when you were um, paying close attention to England and South Africa over 40. That's a nice little callback, the 30-second summary. Let's do that to begin with before um, going into a little bit more depth. Uh, in 30 seconds, starting, shall we say, now. Uh, England were 1-0 down after losing at Centurion and, and were sick. Half the squad were crook in bed, but they fought back to win magnificently in Cape Town, courtesy of uh, Ben Stokes, and did likewise in Port Elizabeth with Ollie Pope making his first century in Test cricket. Bowled them out comfortably on two occasions. Don Best taking Pfeiffer in the first innings. And then at Joe Berg, it was a procession, really. They made 400 for the second time uh, in the first innings, which is quite a big deal for England. Uh, and they uh, comfortably had the firepower with Mark Wood to blast them out a couple of times and win uh, on the fourth day to take the series 3-1. How did they go? Very, very well, Adam. You don't lose um, it. It's muscle memory. Would... That's muscle memory from the World Cup of no, Nations right there. You got it. You have absolutely got it. it, it once we, We've learned how to do this. We're going to be doing this when we're like 94 and can't remember <laughs> a fucking thing from our entire lives because of... Give us a 30-second uh, summary of the World Cup, Jeff. Yeah, it's suddenly just in the middle of, like, we'll just be rolling over in bed and going, 
Pakistan managed to squeak home against Bangladesh in a tight finish. When it was Bismar al Haku. We'll just be making up, Sarah. But there'll be 29 seconds every time. I'll tell you what, the, the staff will be amazed at our perspicacity um, as, as we frolic back through the, the diseased halls of our minds. I was particularly, I was interested to see, I did see headlines around Mark yeah, Wood yeah. taking a bunch of wickets. And I didn't even know he was in the squad, to be well, honest. Well, they took him. Didn't know he well, was touring. Because, I thought he was in. Well, this is the thing. They took him on the view, with the view that they couldn't play him until the third. T- it was, again, you know, selection is a is a fraught thing. You can you can seldom get it right. You're always um, under scrutiny. Mm. But like, I mean, they took the guy with a view to playing him in Test Three and Test Four. That's what he was fit for. He played uh, in uh, at Port Elizabeth rather and did really well uh, and sort of complemented the attack attack really well. Given that Archer wasn't there, so he gave them that that burst of speed. Albeit in a test that was mm-hmm. played on a slow track and and spin was really important with Root and Best taking. I guess they would have taken. 11 wickets between them for the test match or something like that. Uh, Best took five in the first innings, Root four in the second innings. So it wasn't really a, a test for speedsters, contrary to what we're used mm. to at, at PE. Um, but yet he, he managed to sort of make a contribution there. With bad and ball, uh, he hit five sixes, would you believe, uh, in the first innings. Mark Wood. Mark Wood did. And he did it again. He hit, Mark Wood hit five sixes. He's, he's, he's hit eight sixes in the series, which equals what he had made in first-class what? cricket until this time. So he and Stuart Broad put on 82 and they were trending towards Jesus. the fastest ten wicket partner, tenth wicket partnership of all time uh, when it came a cropper. But um, yeah, Broad and Wood went absolutely bananas. So they got England to four hundred in the fourth <laughs> Test match, um, and then Wood backing that up. What the living fuck yeah. was happening? So so that so so Wood made thirty five off thirty nine unbeaten, and that it was after a slow start when he was batting with Wokes and playing conservatively. But when Broad yeah. walked out there, he's like, right, I'm going to click back into fifth gear the way that he had in the previous Test and went nuts. Broad hit four sixes himself in uh, in forty. Three off twenty-eight balls, so turning back the clock a, a decade or so. There, um, big disco stew. Mm. Well, but that's what he does. I mean, he, we know his batting has fallen apart to a large extent, but he can still hit sixes, and he either gets out or hits sixes. That's what he does. Sure. He was hitting sixes. He made that fifty at the MCG. There were a couple of big ones there. Yeah, yeah. Um, hit a couple of sixes in Perth as well. I think on that last Ashes tour. So he can he can tee off. Um, yeah, it's just it's the just it's just the, the, the the confidence to do so, I suppose, and, and all the rest of it. But um, mm. we were, we were on the uh, I was on the BBC Cricket Social with Paul Farbrace, the former England assistant coach, who having worked with Broad a lot. You know, over a long period of time. He was talking mm. about the fact that Broad does more work on his batting now than ever before. It's just that since that head blow, and it, you know, it's a bit, bit of a bit of an old story now, a bit of a cliche, but the head blow he clopped in 2014, it's just a confidence thing. So he never lost the eye. I, I mentioned that um, uh, the YouTube highlights of his century, his 169 at Lords, have never been up. They were up about five years ago and they got taken down. They're back up now. So mm. um, they, they were um, reinstated a month ago. So if you want to go and watch Stuart Broad look like Gary Sobers 10 years ago, that, that's available to you now. But that wasn't that, it wasn't this kind of innings. He was just bashing and crashing mm. over mid-wicket. Meanwhile, Mark Wood, I, I put on Twitter, is it is it Mark Wood or Glenn Maxwell out there? Because he played two shots in consecutive balls over the point boundary after making room outside the league stump and like almost lifting balls on the tram tracks, like total Maxwell ball stuff um, via Mark mm. Wood, who until two weeks ago evidently couldn't hold a bat. Couldn't bat. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. So they got to 400. But, but forget about the batting. I mean, the batting was fun. Was, when they bowled him out for 183 uh, in the first innings, Wood took five of those, five for 46. The rhythm he bowled mm. with on that third day, on three occasions he caught the outside edge. Uh, on three occasions it was taken behind the wicket. So he had three for 20-odd mm. overnight on, on day two and really meant that there was no way that 
South Africa could win the Test match. Remember, of course, that um, South Africa had a pretty good second morning. So they reduced England to, you know, nine for 318 and they'd taken the bulk of those wickets um, either side of lunch. And we're kind of thinking, well, England have thrown away a really strong position here. Um, South Africa will, will mm. come out to bat with their tails up. And, and afterwards, um, explosive batting with Broad and then takes those early wickets. They were, they were cooked by stumps on, on day two. It was really just a question of whether England will enforce the, the follow-on or not. And they didn't, so they would yeah. clean them up the following day. But yeah, he, he took a wicket um, with the second fastest wicket-taking delivery since Crickviz have been keeping those numbers, for England, that is. So I think that was at 94 miles an hour or 152.5 kilometres an hour or something like that. That was his mm. second wicket, I think. So um, he bowled with real pace. Uh, he's got this longer run-up now, Jeff, as well. Like You probably remember Wood you know, uh, usually bowling with like a... Damien Fleming style, late career Damien Fleming, sort of eight paces and and, and let it fling. But now he's got a, yeah, yeah. a longer run up and the weird sort of sprinters block. Yeah, the, 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 the Rubel Hussain or Megan Shoot uh, sort of leap out of the blocks. But he, he's jettisons that in mm. favour of a more rhythmical approach and, and it's serving him well. So and of course one of the most uh, enjoyable characters to, to follow on the tour, a great personality um, to have around sort of around cricket generally and obviously around the team they love him so he cleaned them up and uh, of course he was supported by the usual suspects in, in Wokes and Stokes who both bowled beautifully too uh, England elected to bat again rather than enforcing the follow on so to this stage um, and indeed um, until the fourth innings of the match no one had made a ton or no one had made it beyond 77 I think it was indeed in the England innings the highest score was Zach Crawley was 66. So out of 400, the highest score was 66. So that mm. I think um, Andy Zaltzman pulled up some. Andrew Sampson would have had some fun. Yeah, it was Zaltzman this time. It was the it was the highest tally with a highest score of no higher than 66 or something like that. So mm. yeah, as you say, right, right in the Sampson hitting zone, isn't it? Uh, batting a second time, uh, only Root made a half century. Batted really well. Um, they got bowled out for 248 um, with Hendricks on Dubu taking 5 for 64. There was a lovely moment at the end where Faf Duplessis, Faf Duplessis took a, a wonderful catch um, to finish England's innings uh, just on on the end of the th- on the stroke of stumps on the third evening, um, diving to his right, an absolute mm. screamer, and it might be Duplessis's final test, and we'll come to that in a sec. But it did um, secure Hendricks a, a fire for on debut and a you know, lovely celebration there. But it meant that South Africa was set four sixty six to win. I neglected to mention that Philander only bowled one point three overs in the uh, in the second innings in his final test match. He picked up a niggle and, and didn't bowl um, any further overs than that. So he finishes, and you'll love this, Jeff, having conceded exactly 5,000 runs in Test cricket. Nice. He's the only the second bowler, as, again, Andrew Sampson uh, dug out, only the second uh, bowler to have conceded 1,000 runs or more to have finished with an even amount of an even number as far as thousands are concerned <laughs> so someone else finished with a thousand runs against their name and and, and uh, exactly right. a thousand against his name and um and uh and flander ends up with five thousand so with an average of like and the, the weird thing is that if he'd um in that uh in the Johannesburg test against Australia a couple of years ago, if he'd bowled 1.3 overs in the second innings, he would still have taken six wickets with those nine deliveries. Yeah, that's so right. That's the, what's he, six for one, I think yeah. he took on that final morning. Yeah, it, was, it was six for one to finish so, with like seven for 12, was it? Or it was a crazy, yeah, crazy, something crazy like that. morning. I remember that. Yes, that was also at the, the bull ring, wasn't it? The, the final test of that ill-fated series. Uh, and then South Africa was set 466 for about five minutes when Lassie van der Dorsen was going bananas. We're like, well, they're... They're mm. two down, and they're, at one stage they were they were I guess they were two for 180 odd, uh, with Faf sort of struggling away, but 
but providing a reliable enough support to mm. Randa Dustin, who was batting aggressively, but once that partnership was broken, it was all over about two hours later, all out for 274. So Wood backed it up with four in the second dig, Stokes a couple more. Um, it, so in the end, Stokes picked up four for the match. He made a half century, I think, in the first innings or am I conflating I am conflating he made um, two in the first innings and he made uh, a brisk 28 in the second but it was enough to guarantee that he'd be player of the series of course uh, making um, important quick runs at Cape Town uh, making a century at Port Elizabeth uh, the defining spell of the series at Cape Town as well to bowl South Africa out late on the final day and then really important wickets at Johannesburg was enough to, for Stokes to, to take away that, that prize, which he dedicated to his dad, who's now out of hospital. I see last night he put up a post on social media, so his dad was in dire mm. straits when the series started. It, it sounded very grim indeed, but um, the great news there for their family is that he's now healthy and, and out of hospital. And, and England win the series 3-1, Jeff. And I suppose when you went on holiday, that was very unlikely that they would uh, to be able to do such a thing, given their, their record away from home and their flimsy batting lineup. But since you've been away, they've been able... Well, given that... Their dressing room was knee deep in puke. Yeah, so on at the time. Well, they've made well as I said in the in the in the thirty second summary. They've they've managed to make four hundred in the first innings in consecutive test matches, which is the first two times they've done that since Joe Root took over as captain. So you know Jesus. that I mean that says a fair bit about how mediocre their batting's been when asked to bat first in in a test. But but also that they have sort of found a, a way to show a degree of stability up the top with Crawley and Sibley, the two young men um, who are now coming to Australia on the A tour. So they're trying to give them as much mm. experience as possible uh, batting in foreign conditions, especially um, bouncy conditions before they, they have to take on Australia in a couple of years. And it's pretty interesting, Jeff, because you, you talk to England fans and uh, our colleagues in, in, the, in the media and so forth. And, and it, it, even though we're only, what, Six months into the World Test Championship, and England are third on that on that ladder. Um, they're not even really talking mm-hmm. about that because of the gap that Australia and India have already built in. It's unlikely it won't be Australia and India in that final. They're almost exclusively talking about can they beat Australia in Australia. So um, it's, as ever, it always comes back to the Ashes. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's that somewhat monotonous um, kind of obsession with what's going to happen the next time around. But I suppose being able to come out and compete in Australia is huge for England given the way that they've been towelled up on the last couple of occasions um, we should have a word for Vernon Philander, one of Absolutely. one of the great bowlers that I've seen operate I think um, an inspiration to men with guts that they can still get out there and play elite cricket an inspiration to, to, to real grumpy characters that, that they can still excel in a media saturated world uh, an inspiration to blokes who bowl at 125 and think that that might not be enough because it can be enough if you do the right things with the ball and an inspiration to people who have 17 beers and hop on Twitter that you can still keep your job the next day so um, but look he's he's played 64 tests and racked up 224 wickets in that time he's been ridiculous in his consistency his economy he's so often been the most frugal bowler on the field he's what he's gone at 2.6 runs and over mm. across his test career which is pretty ridiculous stuff um 13 five wicket hauls in test cricket and ever since he debuted was in that crazy test against australia yep. cape town 2011 and um and then he's had a, quite a few more crazy days since then yeah i would just add that i mean imagine he was australian he probably would have zero tests into his column 
Yeah. It's unlikely he ever would have been accepted into the Australian yeah. fraternity bowling at 125 clicks most of the time. Um, and I kind of love that, that there is still room in our sport, in our game, at the elite level, at the very, very pinnacle of the game, test cricket, to have someone who thrives on the basis of their skill, not just their, I guess, athleticism and power. It shows that it is... Yeah, it's a it's a multi-track game. It's it's got more to it than just brute force, and uh, and and there is still space for a bowler like Philander, um, even though he may not have fit into the Australian setup necessarily. Uh, that he's been um, such a force uh, over a pretty long period of time now as well, considering he debuted back in what was it 2011. So that gives him nine years as an international. He's off to play his trade in England now as a Colpac player for Somerset which we'll talk to Neil Manthorpe about in a sec but it sort of felt like he'd reached the end of that that journey as an international player he hadn't lost that much of his potency but just perhaps a little bit had tailed off towards the end and, and he suffered from injuries and so forth so he's leaving at a high point I guess there's a debate around whether he's a, a true great of the game or, or, or a player who was able to periodically achieve greatness I can kind of see um, that debate playing out mm. for some time but but nevertheless um, what a incredible uh, record he walks away with not many bowlers uh, can leave the sport with uh, the amount of wickets he's taken at the average he has in in the space of time he's been playing for as a as a seamer so well played Vernon Philander uh, and and the other player who may very well be finishing up in test cricket although this is less clear is Faf Duplessis Jeff uh, he said while you're away that this will be his last year of international cricket but he didn't quite specify whether that means he won't play tests again mm. as ever the problem for these countries that don't play as much test cricket and that's also to the credit of Flander I should add that he managed to take all those wickets playing far fewer test matches than he would have had he been Australian or English or Indian um, in, in mm. the case of Duplessis they've only got um, a couple more tests scheduled this year and they're in the Caribbean so he might lead them to the Caribbean but they don't play at home again until 2021 they don't play anyone else yeah. so um, there's the T20 World Cup in Australia, which um, Duplessis is keen to lead the Proteus to. Uh, he's not in the one-day squad um, for the one-dayers uh, against England and then subsequently against Australia in February. So um, he's finished up in 50 mm. over cricket. But I guess the question is whether he decides to go around again in test cricket. It seems pretty unlikely. So at least on home soil, uh, I suppose, it's almost certain that we've seen the last of Duplessis, who again has you know had a slightly unlikely test career. And I, or, I only mean that by the fact that he was playing county cricket 10 years ago. He was... Um, it didn't debut until I think he was 26 or 27 in that famous uh, test match at Adelaide where he made a century at the first time of asking an incredible second innings rearguard effort with AB de Villiers but especially Duplessis batting mm. for seven hours to, to, to hold off Australia and then to go on and uh, be a, a captain of the side that's, that's beat Australia a couple of times uh, both away and at home uh, and been one of the most forceful personalities in the game as well and also probably the the premium rig in the game yeah. since Shane Watson retired. You'd have to say um, you. <laughs> the, just just never shy to get around in a towel. Um, never shy to speak up while wearing one. <laughs> never shy to just get the shirt off on the boundary line. Um, have to see his he's brought a lot to the game. It just just between his waist and his collarbones, he's brought a lot to the game. Uh, and another player who it might be the final test match of, and we should just quickly note before we. Uh, I wonder whether Joe Denley's finished, and he shouldn't be, you know. But uh, there's um, there is uh, there is uh, some reportage overnight that he won't go to Sri Lanka. That's England's mm. next Test assignment in March. They play two World Test Championship fixtures uh, in Sri Lanka, and Denley, who you know ha- hasn't 
he averaged 30, but it was the balls he occupied. I mean, the the, the fact that Root didn't have to come in at, at two for Sodor, as has so often been the case for England over the, the last couple of years, mm. surely that um, the, the volume of balls that he soaked up, uh, the amount of times, I think he got to 100 balls on four occasions. He made one half century, but you know, provided a helped contribute to that base that was laid with Sibley and, and Crawley. Denley was part of that in, in helping set um, set innings up to uh, enable Root and then ultimately Pope and Stokes and so on to to get busy mm. later in the innings. But it sounds like Denley uh, might be left out for, for the Sri Lanka tour, and I think that'd be stiff. I, I feel as though, you know, um, I, I appreciate that the way that cricket's observed in, in 2020 that a lot of people sort of can't get over the, you know, runs divided by dismissals equals how good you are as a cricketer. But we kind of just discussed that with Flander. The, the beauty of test cricket is there's kind of more to it than that, isn't there? Like, it's not just about... Mm data and, and averages and so on there, there are other variables uh, that are that are harder to um, illustrate with numbers but we know they're relevant so I mean you yeah. go back to Peter Siddle during the Ashes he didn't take a bunch of wickets at Edgebaston in the first test match I don't know what how many he took maybe two um, and maybe three I can't remember I know he didn't take any in the second innings but anyone who saw that test match anyone that watched it closely would say he was as important to any uh, anyone else and Justin Langer said he was mm. the most important bowler in that test victory which set up the whole series numbers wouldn't show it but the but mm. the but the, the the trained eye knows it, and I sort of feel there's a similar thing going on here with Joe Denley that um, he's going to be left out on the basis of a really crude measure when he was contributing more than that. Yeah, and I mean they've got that issue that when you were talking about the um, ridiculousness of England coming back, a, a big part of that was losing Rory Burns when he yeah. um, buggered his ankle playing warm up football. You know he's been probably their most consistent run contributor since the Ashes, so. Mm-hmm. Losing him should have been the thing that sent their tour off the rails. In, instead, it's it's worked. So they've got these these two young openers who've come in and made runs. Well, well, you know, young slash developing, I suppose. Yep. And they've got Burns to come back. So, as you say, does that mean that that Denley gets forced out? But it was you know something that Vadishan Hantaraja was writing about the just the occupation of the crease and the using using the metric of the old um, cow and ton mm. that. Has come up on this podcast and now, now called the, now called before. now called the dentry. <laughs> they were saying that the uh, <laughs> uh, they've, they've, they've developed on or they've expanded on that. So he, and, and it's a shame he didn't make a dentry in either innings in in in, in Johannesburg because it diminishes the argument somewhat. But when the when the series was there to be won, let's put it that way in in uh, yep. in uh, Cape Town and, and Port Elizabeth, that's that's kind of exactly what he did. I love the fact that in Port Elizabeth he faced exactly one hundred balls, but. Um, whether they might be tempted to bring Keaton Jennings back, given he's got two centuries in the subcontinent, I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks. We are going to get into a different zone, a number zone, a zone of nerds <laughs> and a zone of pledges. I haven't done this for a few weeks and I'm looking forward to it. It's time for Nerd Pledge. This is the game that people play with us on our patron page when they want to support the podcast by throwing a few bucks in the tin. Instead of throwing an even number of bucks, they throw a number that correlates to a cricket number and we have to work it out. Are you ready, Adam? to Nerd Pledge Away. We are indeed ready, Jeff, uh, while you were away. In addition to um, going through some new numbers, we also revisited some old ones as people were getting in touch on on social media and and all the rest. And uh, one of those patrons was Matt Johnson, who insisted that we got the decimal point wrong. That was his clue, moreover, that when we went through Mm. his number back in September, that 
his number being 343. So I think from memory we said it might have been Tony, Tony Dottermaid's cap number. I don't know why we went with that, but we did. But um, 34.3, Jeff, that, that feels like that's right in your space. 34.3, <laughs> as soon as you said, move the decimal point, is, of course, the batting average of Sean Edward Marsh <laughs> in Test Cricket. 34.31 to be precise, but if you round it down... That's where we would end up. So I'm, uh, well, personally devastated that I missed that. Um, I'm I'm very sorry. Yeah, I want to start a movement on this, by the way, Jeff. Why do we work to the second decimal point in cricket? Think about it. Mm. What is if if a player averages thirty four point three one or thirty four point three two? Like, why do we even care? Shouldn't it? Should shouldn't we only be dealing in one decimal point? when it comes to batting averages and bowling averages? Haven't we been for all these years now adding on a, a second decimal point just for trivial reasons? Maybe it just helps separate uh, players on the lists in that you'd, you'd probably have quite a lot on the same, you know, people around, say, 38.4 or something like that. I'm not There'd sure you do, though. I, I, I don't know do whether you... you I mean, maybe you, uh, maybe you would if you were grouping hundreds and hundreds of players together, but mm. they're not going to be that many players that finish with a batting average of 34.3, for example. I reckon there might be, you know, a handful because of the... the right. You, you know I'm trying to say? Like, it just feels like... Anyway, sorry, Matt. We, we've been derailed by something that came up um, uh, the other week and I, I wanted to revisit. Look, it's interesting, but then then who's to say, we? why don't we just do away with decimals altogether, Adam? Where does it stop? Where does the slippery slope stop? <laughs> what if we then just say 34? What if everyone's on thirty-four? How do you how do you differentiate between? But, but there would but there you know, would be you're a rounding lot of up, you're on, rounding down. <laughs> but there would be a lot of people with an average of thirty-four, but an average of thirty-four point three. Yeah. That specific, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I'm sure we'll but get. But then I'm that's sure got to round down to thirty-four. I mean, those decimal points are hard won. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> if, if you if you're on thirty-four point six, do you really deserve to be rounded up to thirty-five? Yeah. You're not. You don't have thirty-five. You didn't average thirty-five. Don't come in here saying you average thirty-five. You're a liar. I you average thirty-four. I guess the only person where that second decimal point has been truly relevant is Bradman, isn't it? As Bradman, ever the who would average 100 under your system. No, he wouldn't. But would He'd never really 90. count. It would feel no, he cheap. Wouldn't. He'd average 99.9. It would feel cheap. 99.9. Oh. It would be even better in a way if he would average 99.9 than 99.94. I mean, sure, I know that's been the... It's the ABC um, locked bag in every city, Post, isn't it? Postbox. Postbox, yeah, rather. It is. They couldn't have done that with 999, or maybe they could have. A, yeah, but there would have been yeah. How many numbers do you need in a in a PO box? I I don't even know. Uh, is, isn't but, it triple nine? But if we went further, get rid of decimals, he averages a hundred, but he doesn't. But he would, but he doesn't. Where does it end? And we just oh. do away with do away with the other. We say, oh, Steve, or average fifty three. We just call it fifty. Yeah, we just say, say 50. round up to the nearest ten. God. Fifty odd. Yeah, fifty odd. Thirty odd. You know, it's a dangerous world, Adam. But we can't we can't be going down these rabbit holes. we haven't even started our actual segment. This no, no. is just a callback that's gone for ten minutes. I want to um, I want to uh, uh, just thank Robin F for getting in touch with us on Twitter. He's going to change his number from two four two to something else. Um, he says we're now mm-hmm. his number one podcast now that the West Wing Weekly is finished, and I can kind of share that. I think our podcast is my favourite show now. The West Wing Weekly is finished as well. <laughs> it, it, it finished up um, this week. I went to 
just saw one of their live shows in London recently. It was awesome. Uh, he says he really appreciates the podcast. It's so thoughtful and intelligent. And as a father to a cricket mad daughter, your support for women's cricket is exceptional. Well, thank you, Robin. That's very kind of you. And thanks for your contribution as a patron. Looking forward to seeing your updated number. So that gets us through uh, what we've received from last week. Jeff, let's get into some new numbers. Yeah, or, or, well, one old number uh, before we do that because we owe an apology to Ryan. He's on our patron list as Ryan Africa, but he hosts the Rumble podcast. Um, I met up with him on the South African tour. Um, He sent us a number a few months ago, which I recorded as having been dealt with, but we must have missed it on the show. So we've we've been derelict in our duty. Right. And, uh, And that number is two... 2.28 or $2.28. So Ryan has, has done us a service in, in subscribing and we have done him a disservice in missing his number. So our, our sincere apologies for that. But the number, I, see, I knew I knew he was a big South African fan and I immediately thought, hmm, there's something about that number. And, uh, and, and he also then sent a little hint where he said it involved Newlands. Uh, Herschel Gibbs made 228 at Newlands in 2003 against Pakistan. Mm. South Africa made 600, made Pakistan follow on, bowled them out twice. It was a, it was a rout. And I'm, I'm tipping that it's going to be Herschel Gibbs' top score it coming as it does from a, a huge South Africa fan. Probably not Ray Lindwell's test wicket tally. I'll, I'll go with Herschel Gibbs. That's good. <laughs> So that one, that's, that's a, a, another past one. Well, now we're getting on to some new ones, and this is one that I've been looking forward to because the screen name of the person who has sent this through, I don't know if I know this person or not, but I've, I've been looking forward to it because it's just McGonagall. <laughs> McGonagall. Now, if you don't know who McGonagall is, um, this is McBain. one of, <laughs> I know one it's of, not one of the single great one of the single great passages from The Simpsons. Uh, did you really have to destroy an entire city block, McGonagall? Why don't you tell me, Chief? You had a pretty good view from behind your desk. You're off the case, McGonagall. No, you're off your case, Chief. What does that even mean? Homer, it means he gets results, you stupid Chief. <laughs> That's so good Sit you got down, that stuck in your head from all these years. <laughs> I have I had that. It is, that is tattooed on my soul. Uh, so when someone signed up to our <laughs> nerd pledge to our podcast with the name McGonagall... I it means he gets results. <laughs> it means he gets results. And the result is 614. What does 614 mean? Now, immediately... Well, I, yeah, well, well, Imran, it looks like it? bowling figures. Yeah, it's Imran. It looks like bowling figures. 6 for 14. Yeah, well, it, it's definitely... What, it, it, uh, well... It's when Imran bowled out India, isn't it? Six or fourteen. I'd be surprised if it wasn't that. Um, so that's it is mid-80s. that, or it's or it's another six for fourteen in ODI cricket, but from earlier than that. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So. Um, okay. Let, let's let's do that. Let's let's think this through. So, um, uh, six or fourteen in early World Cup. Um, One of those unlikely heroes. Uh, didn't didn't play a whole lot of cricket for uh, Australia. Um, oh, Gary Gilmore. Gary Gilmore. Gary Gilmore, six four game. I knew you'd get it. Scared the fucking shit out of them. Yes, by hooping it, and also made runs. Yes, Gary Gilmore or Imran Khan together at last. Thank you, McGarnacle. 
Our next number comes from Adam, but not you, from Adam in Vanuatu. Hello, Port Vila. Um, I don't know if we have a lot of listeners in Vanuatu or if we're top of the charts there as well, in got, Denmark. Well, we've got one. Well, sorry, we've got one mm. um, who, one man who's involved with the Vanuatu national team, Peter Duffy, who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. former captain of mine, who, um, who's had some um, who's had some strong involvement with Vanuatu cricket, getting them to where they are. I'm sure Duff's listening. So I wonder if Adam's friends with Duff. Probably is. 6.64 is a number, is it? Well, that's the number, but I, I'm tipping it's another bowling number. It's another six for it's another It's a six oh, yes. for 64. Who uh, picked up six for 64 uh, um, very much in our in our areas? Uh, right. Um, hmm. That's a good question. Who got six for 64? Um, hmm. Have you got one in mind? I haven't got anything at the top 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 of my head. Just give me a bit of well, a... I, I I gave you a bit of a hint when I used the word areas. Area Shane. Uh, when did Shane Warne take six for sixty four? Am I on the right track? In in the match, not in the innings where he took the hat trick. Oh, in first innings. Where he took the hat trick. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. First innings. So, right. So that was the Boxing Day Test match, which started on Christmas Eve in 94, uh, 994, 95. Yeah, that's right. So Warn six for sixty four. I quite like that. So um, that was um, that was the first Test match I ever attended. Um, yes, of course, uh, having only gone on the fourth day. So I got to see David Boone record his 20th Test century. Um, I remember being captivated by the idea that Phil Tufnell had bowled in excess of 50 overs. And at that age, I'm like, wow, he's bowled a whole one day on his own. Um, Mm. And uh, I watched Damien Fleming pick up two late wickets with two gorgeous outswingers. Um, But I didn't see Shane Wontatrick, of course, because I've never seen one of those. So, um, uh, Mm. but he did take six in the first I see here also over 664 um, it's Sam Robson's cap number um, Sam he's a, a Middlesex player who I run into quite mm-hmm. a lot a lovely fella he played seven test matches for England in, in 2014 made a century up at Leeds so that's another 664 although I'm tipping that's not it it's probably more likely to be uh, what you already identified I can't think of anything else that jumps out of 664 so uh, look, maybe there's a reason why Adam um, holds that particular bag of wickets from worn close to his heart. And look, if uh, you were amazed at seeing Phil Tufnell bowl the whole one day or on his own, imagine seeing him drink an entire case of Berkeley Co on his own. <laughs> He's a great man, Tuffers. <laughs> our, last, our last one for today from Jason Atkinson. So thanks to McGonagall, Adam in Vanuatu, uh, Ryan in Africa and Jason Atkinson. 159 is Jason Atkinson's number, and, and this is one of those where, look, I, I don't think it's an innings score because mm. nothing hugely famous jumps out at me at, at the 159 mark. It's probably it's about your pass score in the Big Bash, maybe. But um, <laughs> uh, so I was looking at individual test innings, and well, the the, the one. The recent one that, that, that came to mind first was Richard Pant at the SCG, um, so that maybe Jason was there that day. Maybe he enjoyed watching Rishab had a day, have a day out when he absolutely flogged the shit out of the Australian bowling attack yes. during that. Uh, what was, in the end, was a draw, but where India made 700 at the SCG um, two summers ago. Yeah. It's the score that Mushfiqur Rahim made uh, when Bangladesh made 595 for eight, declared in New Zealand a couple of years ago. It was their first really big batting performance outside of uh, home conditions, although they did manage to find a way to lose that test on the last day. It's Wayne Phillips' top score. 
against Pakistan at the Wacker in 1983. I don't know if Jason Atkinson is a big flipper fan, but a friend of the show, we, we run into Wayne Phillips. Once a year. Annually <laughs> in Adelaide. Um, and he's always on good form, always got a story to tell. Sometimes maybe the same stories, but... Uh, well, he's got the same... Well, I mean, he's got the same haircut as when he played. He, he's mm. um, retained the mullet all these years later, and he's at fantastic company, uh, Wayne. So uh, it, could, it could be Flipper. Um, it also could be the big ship. Um, Warwick Armstrong made an unbeaten 159 mm. against South Africa at the Bull Ring, given we were talking about Johannesburg earlier in the show. I guess that's possible. Yeah, there, 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 there's a twin... There's a sort of joint thing there where Warwick Armstrong and Victor Trumper both made 159s against South Africa. Trumper made one in Melbourne in 1910. Um, and other links to the show, Ian Chappell's favourite, Ian Redpath, uh, <laughs> Redders. You always get a Redders story along with your Les Favelle story. Yep, yep. Um, he, he made a 159 in Auckland in 1974. So there are quite a few 159s, but I've got no idea which one has captured Jason Atkinson's heart hmm. or if it's something else entirely. You can let us know, Jason, on Twitter, uh, on the email, Final word cricket at Gmail or message us on the Patreon page, which you can do because you signed up. If anyone else wants to sign up, send us a nerd pledge and support the show with a few dollars in the tin. You can go to patreon.com slash the final word. You spell patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, for reasons that are best known to the founders of Patreon. That is Nerd Pledge for today. Uh, get in touch, get involved, and we will continue nerding and pledging next week. Right, let's get Neil Manthorpe on the phone. Uh, South African cricket veteran, broadcaster, analyst, historian, coming up on The Final Word. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. As I said uh, in the intro before, we've got with a South African broadcaster, historian on the game, Neil Manthorpe. Manners, uh, great to have you with us. The, the reason we thought we would get you on is because there's been a fairly sudden decline in South African cricket. And a lot of Australian supporters listening to this would be wondering why, uh, given the last time that Australia played in South Africa, it was a comprehensive, comprehensive victory for the home side. Um to start our conversation, what are the obvious reasons why South African cricket is in this in this downward spiral at the moment? Um, well, Adam, first of all, you said it was a sudden decline, and I think actually it's been um, it's been happening for a couple of years. Uh, the problem is the batting primarily. Um, you'll remember that there were some pretty spicy wickets that Australia played on, and some even spicier ones that India played on in the preceding series. And that's been the way for the last uh, three or four years, South Africa backing their seam attack on increasingly dodgy pitches, and it's made it more and more difficult for the batsmen. So what we have ended up with now, when fit and available, is a very good bowling attack with Kahisa Rabada, Anrich Norkia, Lungi Ngidi when he's fit, um, Kishav Maharaj, and, and a couple of other fast bowlers who... who, who could cut it at international level as a as a unit, provided there's three or four hundred runs on the board, and that has been the problem. Um, the batting has been in in proper decline, and it's interesting that Jacques Callis, who's been employed as the batting consultant to the national team, has said that that there are actually technical issues. It's not a question of mental application and and desire and fight and all of those typical South African qualities. 
he said that the guys are having to learn on the job at test level. He said there are, there are technical issues, um, and that's a real, real concern, and that's going to take some time to come right, apart from all the off-field stuff, of course, which is affecting all cricketers in South Africa. So do you think it's more to do with that immediate on-field technical development of the players who are at that level, or how much of a an influence is the off-field stuff because when you're talking about off-field it, it, it seems like South African cricket's been fading f- for a while you've had all of all of these great players of the last few years sort of declining and coming towards the, the end of their careers like Hashim Amler and Dale Stane and so on you've got this constant drain of Colpac players away to county cricket um, out of the South African system and it's, it seems like the production line has stalled in terms of producing players who, who can come in and and actually deliver at that international level? There's nothing wrong with the production line per se. Um, there's always going to be an excess of potential first-class cricketers from South Africa, um, given that there are 50-plus schools which play very high-quality cricket, the cricket specialist schools with you know facilities that make some first-class setups um, envious around the world. So, so there will always be... Um, uh, a strong production line and as I said um, South African cricketers have been leaving the country for decades for over half a century to go and find employment elsewhere the off-field stuff is really debilitating um, you know and it, it provides a big disincentive as well for for young cricketers to believe in a, a bright future in South Africa. I mean, if, if the Colpac ruling changes with with um, Britain leaving the European Union, that might change things. But it's just, it's dispiriting. On the one hand, you might think 17, 18, 19-year-olds will think, great, there's more place on the first-class scene for, for us if, um, if all these players leave and go and find employment elsewhere. But it actually has a different effect. You know, they begin to think, well... What, what is the future? Why should the future be bright if all our best players leave? Um, I think ultimately South Africa will still remain competitive and I don't think we're going to go the way of Zimbabwe like um, the real pessimists say and suggest but the, the problem is at the moment is that you know that the very best players are the ones who are leaving. It's not just um, you know a few dozen from the middle of the ranks it's at the top um, that, that are leaving and Cricket South Africa has got itself into a desperate desperate mess the, you know the finances are are, are completely ruined um, it's going to be a very very long road back to anything like parity and we still have an utterly discredited board president vice president and the remaining directors on the board four of them have resigned but we've got eight who are just hanging on there in absolutely self-interest, self-serving, um, and they refuse to leave. Um, Standard Bank have announced they're the biggest sponsor of South African cricket. They've announced that they're no longer going to be involved. The second biggest, Momentum, as a financial services provider, have said that they will only consider continuing if the board step down. And they're refusing to. And they say no, that they're, they're serving the best interests of cricket. Well, it's absolute nonsense. And the players, over 300 professional players in South Africa, are all looking around thinking, this is who is running the game. This is, these are our employers. And they, and they I, I have only their, their own interests at heart. With those sort of off-field preconditions, I suppose, for... Uh, players who might consider leaving. There's been so many high-profile examples in recent years. I mean, Kyle Abbott and Riley Rousseau leaving at the same time for Hampshire, but perhaps more um, painfully might have been Dwayne Olivier when he left at the start of last year after the 
Sri Lanka Test Series. And it, it, it felt from the outside looking in that that was um, ill-conceived on the basis that he thought he was going to play for England um, in a few years' time when he's never going to play for England given the, the, way, that the, the, the way that he's made his way uh, into the county system. He doesn't have access to a British passport or anything like that. So I guess my, my question is, is there a misunderstanding about what Colpac actually means is there uh, and, and I guess following on from that is there a possibility that if if the Colpac provision is removed now that Britain is leaving or the United Kingdom's leaving the European Union uh, might that mean that there could be an influx of players back into the South African system who, who'd previously moved off to Canada? Well there's um, not a great deal of, of goodwill um, outside of direct cricketing circles towards the Colpac players by the way, um, Duan Olafir on the one hand was um, highly cynical in playing the series against Pakistan in the full knowledge that he had already signed a, a contract with Yorkshire. So that was, um, that, that, was, that was pretty cynical, but he wasn't the first person to do it. In fact, um, you go way back uh, almost two, two decades ago when Mananto Haywood also played a full season of South African international cricket before going off um, to join Worcestershire. And there have been a few that did it. Kyle Abbott, uh, of course, famously played the the lead role in in beating Australia in 2016 and that also in the knowledge that he had agreed a deal with Hampshire. So um, the point about Olafir's comment then subsequently when he was interviewed by the Daily Mail um, that he'd like to play for England was was simply um, a, and a clumsy slightly embarrassing case of ingratiation. He was um, he was simply trying to say the right thing. You know, he was sort of um, uh, experiencing the, um, uh, again, lack of goodwill towards Colpac players in England. I mean, these guys might be um, enjoying the luxury of uh, earning pounds and, and, and having four-year contracts, but, you know, there's still a little bit of uh, resentment in England and when they come back to South Africa. They can't play... They, they can... Initially, Cricket South Africa said that Colpac players coming back off-season to South Africa could not play domestic cricket. They, were, they, were try, they banned them. Then there was um, a labour issue, and the South African Cricketers Association challenged that. Cricket South Africa backed off and said, OK, we realise that's restraint of trade, we can't stop you from working. But the provinces and the franchises cannot pay you out of the CSA-provided salary cap. So now, if Duane Orofier or Kyle Abbott or Riley Rousseau wants to come back and play domestic cricket in South Africa, whoever employs them has to find the money to pay them independently outside of their, their official salary cap. Um, so it makes it very, very difficult all round. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, I, don't, I don't know whether it'll make much of a difference um, if, if all the Colpac players came back. But what is definitely the case is that young batsmen... Um, Take Zubair Hamza, who batted at number three against England for the first couple of test matches. He's a very, very talented young cricketer, 24 years old. He averages almost 50 in first-class cricket. Yet, he'd never faced anybody bowling at 145 kilometres an hour because all of those bowlers have either retired or have gone off to play Colpac. Um, and then he's... So, so he's there batting three for South Africa, facing Mark Wood, and, and Joffre Archer in the first test match, bowling at 150 kilometres an hour. He's never experienced anything like that before. And that sort of sums up the problem that we have um, with all the best players not, not only leaving South Africa, but not coming back to play. It means that the standard of first-class cricket in South Africa has... That's what's really tumbled. That's what's really declined. Neil, can you give 
us a sense for those of our listeners who don't know a whole lot about it, uh, what the financial situation is with Cricket South Africa. You know, they've lost a lot of money on their uh, attempted and, and failed uh, T20 competition, sort of trying to mirror the IPL mould. Uh, but what has happened financially? How has it been able to happen? And, and how is that board able to hang on without intervention from, whether from uh, government in South Africa or from the ICC or whatever it may be, to, uh, to be able to force a, a more competent administration? Costs have just spiralled and income has declined. It's that simple. I mean, it's economics. Um, when Harun Logat, who was then Chief Executive Officer of CSA, set up the T20 Global League, what he did was um, he cleared the international fixture list, which was previously South Africa's most um, successful and lucrative window for international cricket, which is November, December. Um, and um, he, he cleared all of the international fixtures there because he said in order to succeed, the T20 Global League needed to have all of the international players playing in it. Um, then the international big names were signed up on a two-year contract. The T20 Global League collapsed at a cost of 200 million. Um, and the international window was closed then. then so there's no incoming tours during that time. CSA eventually decided to start the Mzanzi Super League, which is not not very super, and, and that's costing over a hundred million rand. So so you're talking about two hundred and fifty million rand losses on the failed T twenty Global League, and now the Mzanzi Super League has run two years and has has cost has lost over a hundred well over a hundred million each. So that's four hundred and fifty million. The television rights deal for South African international cricket was up for renewal and the broadcasters, rather than increasing that seven-year deal by 10 or 20%, said, well, actually, not only is there less international cricket, there's less quality because we're playing Sri Lanka five times in five years because the big three have monopolised the international fixture list. Australia, England and India, have, um, they're playing each other twice a year in all, you know, all the different formats. So, so Cricket South Africa has survived on international television rights income and that's not only not increasing, it's decreasing by 30%. So we're heading for, in the next... 12 to 18 months, a deficit of about a billion rand. Um, and as I said, um, you know, there's a lot of money being spent on grassroots cricket and, and development structures, which, is, which are unsustainable. It, it, costs are increasing. Uh, and cricket South Africa have moved to a new headquarters at a cost of over another 100 million rand. So the administrators continue to eat cake while the players... Um, are looking for stale bread. Man, it's a really difficult time for South African cricket. We've got the, the World Test Championship and, and the One Day League, which is on the way as well, which is meant to provide uh, an egalitarian structure of sorts to international fixturing. But then we see uh, reports a couple of weeks ago about the big three starting their own 50-over uh, competition, which would rotate uh, year on year. Uh, what do South African uh, administrators and close watchers of the game think when they, when they see something like that? Absolutely beyond appalling. It's just, um, it's greed gone mad. I mean, you know, unless Australia, England and India believe that they, they can form 
a long sustainable Super League and continue to attract the same audiences and revenue by just playing each other or by being so dominant that it's like having three Liverpools in the in the you know in the English Premier League I, I mean it's 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 just hard to describe the disdain and disgust that that South Africans feel and and it's not just a South African emotion at all I mean it's you know it's shared I think very profoundly with the small seven um, it, it, you know it is it it is just it's staggering isn't it it's absolutely staggering does it feel that way now does it feel that way now does it feel like there's a big three and a small seven I mean I know there's more than than seven other full member nations but out of the the ten before Afghanistan and Ireland does that do you get that feeling now as one of the non-big three that that there is a demarcation oh and it's getting more and more profound with every day Absolutely, yes. Um, there's no, no... No one's catching up, are they? I mean, are, are there any signs of any one of the previous small seven ca- catching up? Is there any sign of magnanimity from, from the big three? I mean, are they showing any interest whatsoever in, in, in having a competitive league? It <laughs> doesn't look like it from here. Well, not, not when they're stepping outside of it to organise their own you know, tournaments outside the ODI uh, competition and outside that structure. And it completely discredits the Test Championship or the or the World ODI League, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's like saying yes, yeah, okay, right, okay. Well, the, you know, we've been crying out for some context and and some competitive uh, nature uh, to uh, of a league that people can understand around the world. They can have a look at it and go, right, okay, they're playing them, and okay, right, we get it, we get it, uh, we're we're going to back it. Excellent, let's do that. Oh, and by the way, this is what we really think of it because we're going to set up our own little league. Going back to South African domestic issues, uh, there was an episode a couple of months ago where you and a, a series of other senior South African reporters and broadcasters were were uh, had your accreditation revoked. Uh, can you just run through what happened there? Why did it happen? And what did you learn from from that episode and, and your colleagues about about um, about the administration's attitude towards scrutiny and coverage of, of cricket South Africa? Well, I suppose it was inevitable that the the accreditation revoking created such headlines but it was unfortunate because that became the story and that became the focus of so many people's attention rather than what it was that we had been writing about that had upset cricket south africa um you know that i mean what did we learn from it well um the, the chief executive um Tabang Moreau has now been suspended, albeit on full and very generous pay for six months, um, and the board is utterly discredited. But but they remain; they they still cling on. Um, you know, the, the the transformation is just one of of the issues. Everybody in South Africa, and I mean everybody that matters, uh, and I'm, it's a tiny, tiny. Um, Minority that that don't disagree with the concept and the principle of transformation, but but Linda Zondi, who's a very proud Zulu man, who was the convener of selectors for four years, um, and did the job at the World Cup, and was then immediately sacked and made a scapegoat for not pressing transformation enough. He had a great line when Graham Smith, who was appointed acting director of cricket reappointed him as convener of selectors just two weeks before the England tour he says we should never apologize for transformation we should always um, ensure that there is equal opportunity for all cricketers in our country but I will not tick boxes 
cricketers are people, not just numbers. Um, and and that was really important. You know, the whole ethos of professional sport, obviously, is the pursuit and the achievement and the reward of excellence. Um, and excellence in elite sport is should be what it what it's all about. Um, you know, having having said that, let's go with Linda Zondi. Um, if there if there aren't the right cricketers with the right ability to fulfil the requirements of transformation quotas, then it's it's um, it's uh, it's unkind and unfair and um, degenerative uh, to the game, to the progress of the game, in order to, to push them through, to push transformation targets and quotas at any cost. Um, and, and so that, that was a message that did, wasn't received well. <laughs> um, but as you, can, as you can imagine. Is there any cause for optimism, Neil? Are there things that can improve? Are there, is there a possibility that this stalemate with the board will be able to be resolved and, and that uh, you know the, the right progress can be made? Well, you know, we've, we've had crises before in South African sport. Everyone's had a crisis. Every board's had a crisis. Some boards and nations exist in a perpetual state of crisis. So um, I have seen things go wrong before and I have every reason to believe that that they will improve and that we will get back on track um, and as I said you know we have we have excellent facilities we have a lot of people who love the game and we have an excellent production line um, through the school system and I think that when we decide that I'll give you an example. Cricket South Africa have spread their money, their development money, across the entire nation um, in what they believe to be a politically correct gesture of making the game available to, to everybody in every region in equal uh, amounts. And that's just unrealistic, isn't it? I don't know whether this is true or not, but many people have told me that you know there are certain cities in Pakistan, like Lahore, for example, where hockey is the far more popular than cricket. Um, I don't know whether this is true either, but it makes a nice, it makes the point. It, it doesn't Rio de, Rio de Janeiro have more registered beach volleyballers than than football players, and that's Brazil. You know, the I mean, I, I, it may or may not be true, but it illustrates the point that there are areas in South Africa where cricket has been played among the black population for over a hundred years in the Eastern Cape and the border and Eastern Province. Um, and there are other areas where the game will never, ever be as popular or people be as interested in it as they will in football, for example. And I think that once we begin to accept that and realise that um, and that we concentrate our funds and our expertise on the areas that are most receptive and productive in producing new, the new cricketers, then um, we will once again become become a, a competitive... No it was only six years ago that South Africa, South Africa was world number one. Um, so there's every reason to believe that uh, they, they can get back there, but there'll be, have to be some, some fairly profound changes of, of mindset. Uh, Neil Manthorpe, let's hope we see exactly that. Thanks for sharing your insights with us and thanks for being part of the final work. That's my pleasure, guys.
Jeff, each month uh, I look forward to seeing the cover of Wooston Cricket Monthly. They do a great job in there with their designer, Joe Provis and, and co, and Joe Harmon and Phil Walker and all the rest. There's usually a lot of uh, a lot of uh, debate around what they'll put on the cover and have absolutely nailed it this month. I'm not sure you've had a chance to have a look at it quite yet, but it's a cricket ball designed as a heart because this month in the new edition of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, they're going through and looking at the state of English cricket and they're trying to get to the heart of the game. And it's a, I haven't had a mm. chance to, to read the edition yet. It's going on, on shelves tomorrow, but it, no better time to uh, pick up your subscription, which of course you can do through the final word. You can, and you can also do it at a significant discount through the final word. You can get a six-month digital subscription, so that's an issue every month for six months. That makes six issues if you are following along on your fingers at home. You've got six fingers, you absolute freak. Uh, No, I apologise. Six-fingered people are fine, except for the guy in The Princess Bride who had six fingers uh, and was very villainous, if I remember correctly. But you can get those six issues for... Six pounds or five pounds ninety nine, if you want to be really precise about it, which is about ten or eleven dollars in Australian I'd money. I'd say it's about ten bucks, and, and, and six editions of the magazine for ten bucks. Given we don't really have a cricket magazine in Australia, let's remember that we we we, we grew up reading Inside Edge. We grew up, um, I'm sure, a lot of people listening to this is that being a big part of their their cricketing diet, and what a great magazine it was. But but sadly, that's no longer. Wisdom Cricket Monthly is the best cricket magazine in the world. It has a focus on the global game, uh, men women's um, domestic cricket as well uh, there's no better mag to get your hands on if you're an English reader or an Australian reader or someone who's listening to this podcast from outside those nations of course and what a steal six quid or ten bucks and all you need to do is go to bit.ly so bit.ly forward slash WCM final we'll have that link in the show notes and you'll go to the page no code required Click on there and suddenly you'll have yourself six editions of the magazine. And what a great edition to kick off with. Number 28 we're up to. So the the, 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 the 28th version of Wisdom Cricket Monthly in its current form. Uh, and we, as I say, we've got that, that big feature on the state of play of English cricket at the moment, which is well worth a read. And there's a fascinating interview uh, with Ravi Chandra and Ashwin about, among other things, uh, climate change and cricket, a topic which we've discussed many times on the show before. Uh, Phil uh, is talking about the New England superstar Ollie Pope. Andrew Fidel-Fernando, uh, one of our favourites, is uh, discussing uh, the return of Test cricket to Pakistan. I've written about Manus Labashain. How could I not write about Manus Labashain, Jeff, after the summer that's been? And then we've got uh, Tim Key's perfect day at the cricket, uh, which of course would be most mm. amusing. That's always a, a nice, funny section at the back. But um, every month that you pick up this mag, you get some of the best cricket writers in the world in there, time and time again. Uh, a magazine with both, which both you and I contribute to routinely, uh, and one which you can get very cheaply because of their friendship with us. Andrew Fernando wrote a piece uh, while that Pakistan, the the tour of Pakistan was ongoing. He wrote a piece about Barbara Azam, which was one of the best cricket articles I've ever read. It was mm. just absolutely outstanding piece of writing. So whatever he's got to write in the magazine on that tour would be well worthwhile. He's uh, in some of the best form of his career, Andrew Fernando. So uh, yeah, you can you can grab hold of that magazine very, very cheaply. It's, you know, a couple of bucks an issue. It's, um, it's really not worth thinking about. You might as well just get hold of it. And then that will make them happy. And then we'll be happy because they're happy. And you'll be happy because we're happy and they're happy. And everybody's happy. We create a happiness circle. It's like a whirlpool. And it gets more and more intense towards the centre and then right at the centre there's just a couple of people with glow sticks going absolutely wild. That's how happiness works. Get yourself a subscription to Wisdom Cricket Monthly bit.ly 
slash WCM final. This is Jeremy Coney, born 21-6-19. So I'm a little older than you thought. And I'm on the final word. And who better to say the final word? Jeremy. It's the final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Let's round this out with some pop purée. Women's World T20 isn't far away. We're going to do a full preview on that in a couple of weeks once we're through the end of the, mm. the men's big bash. But England are in town. Uh, they've had their, their practice matches in the ACT. Uh, and Australia, of course, have started their warm-ups as well, building towards that tournament, Jeff. And how happy would you have been, Adam, to see England taking on an ACT 11? Oh, so oh, good. Just a, a proud camp. Canberra transplant, uh, big ACT Meteors fan. Uh, <laughs> Canberra Comets. A lover. <laughs> well, yep, Canberra Comets, the ACT Meteors. Indeed. So it's all all going around there. Did Merv Hughes play for them once? Yeah, Merv Hughes played a couple of seasons, Brad Haddon. But yes, in the, in the ACT, of course, the ACT have their own, as they should in the men's cricket. In the women's cricket, the ACT Meteors are actually a, a part of the state system in a WNCL. Um, it, it should be the case that um, that's replicated for the men and we have a seventh first class team separate story but um, y- you're right they, they have been in Canberra of course England won uh, two T20s in the nation's capital against Australia in the women's ashes of 2017 so they like it there um, mm. and they had a win which is a nice way to start any tour well Danny Wyatt made that uh, great 100 in the women's ashes T20 in Canberra a couple of years ago made another 77 off 44 opening the batting um, England piled on 191 runs for seven. Uh, the ACT did pretty well in reply. Got to 144, but nine down. Anya Shrubsell took three wickets, so pretty comprehensive there. Even more comprehensive for Australia, obliterating a CA11. Meg Lanning, 93, not out of 66, drove them to 184. And uh, the CA11 of the, the, really the sort of Australia A kind of 11, never got close. Uh, nine down for 86 at the time that the innings came to an end. Georgia Wareham, three wickets to all but bowl them out. Um, so results as expected, but it, it, it seems like, you know, both teams in reasonable nick. It'd be wrong of me not to mention that on the other podcast that I do, which is currently uh, doing a series about Australia A 25 years ago, we're auctioning off, mm. would you believe, Jeff, an Australia A helmet from 1994-95. We've, we've acquired a batting helmet from one of the players that played in that series. Of course, the money going towards bushfire relief and recovery through the Red Cross. So uh, jump on my socials. You're buying it. Clearly you're buying it. But we're trying to Clearly you're bidding on this on, a, on it yourself. On a product that we've required ourselves, that's right. But yes, uh, that's on the greatest season it was. <laughs> but I'm surprised to see that margin between Australia and, and Australia A or the CA11, the Caxi, uh, as, as they're often um, known as these days. But but still, landing in, in, in red hot form at the right time. Uh, India are also in town for that tri-series they're playing before the major tournament. So we'll get a pretty good feel uh, for the as ever the big three uh, before uh, we move into the tournament proper which I believe starts on the 22nd or 23rd of February and of course we'll be following that really closely on the final word Jeff you'll be there throughout I'll be watching every game probably with a newborn but it'll be a good excuse to pull up in front of the television and watch every last minute of that um, when we get to it oh, and I should also add Jeff that the Governor General's 11 uh, played mm. uh, their annual fixture so that must be the fifth year of that we were at the first one weren't we back at Leichhardt um, yeah uh, way back when uh, Phoebe Litchfield who's making a real name for herself um, as a player of the future that video that went viral of her batting last year she's been 
Uh, she made a fantastic um, uh, debut in the WBBL late last year as well. She's been picked in the bushfire relief game that's been played on the 9th of February, mm. which in- includes Shane Warne and Steve Warne and Sachin Tendulkar, I think it is, and a host of others. T- uh, Tendulkar's coaching one coaching of the teams. Right. So, so Courtney Walsh and Sachin Tendulkar are each coaching a team. I wonder if Shane Warne and Steve Warne will play on the same team in that or play against each other. And what, what would be more interesting, Ooh. playing in the same team or Warren bowling to war or even war bowling to Warren which could be equally interesting. Definitely more interesting if they had to play together um, and and see how that pans out after all these years Um, Alex Blackwell's playing, Elise Villani's playing Uh, so yeah in in Phoebe Litchfield she's going to be out there to you know maybe have her Zoe Goss moment. There was a great write-up. Oh, there. yeah. Was it on cricket.com.au, I think Marty, it was? Marty Smith wrote an absolutely sensational piece about Zoe, Zoe Goss, 25 years on. I mean, and there's another there's another piece that the, 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 the World Cup Twitter account has popped out, a video about Zoe's career. Uh, I, I highly recommend both pieces. Of course, I mean, Jeff, I'm, I'm sure you, like I, um, our first exposure to women's cricket was Zoe Goss dismissing Brian Lara 25 years ago, and, um, and, uh, and her legacy lives on. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, a, a couple of outswingers, and and away you go. Um, so yeah, just just punch that into Google or something, you'll find that. Um, so yeah, that that'll be. I think that will hopefully be a, a, a heartwarming night, the bushfire relief game. Yep. So we'll keep a close eye on that as well. Um, the big bash, I have. NFI, Adam. I've been I've been on holiday. I haven't been paying any attention whatsoever, and uh, I don't imagine you've been paying much more attention than me. Well, there definitely are eight teams in the competition, and five of them have definitely made the finals. Um, I know that yep. the Melbourne Stars are, are one of those because um, you know, that's the team that occasionally I get messages about when Glenn Maxwell's batting. Um, I don't know much more than that, other than the fact that they're applying a final five system this year. And I had a quick look at it before, and unfortunately, they're not adopting the former McIntyre final five system that you and I grew up with uh, watching when we were kids watching the footy where there were six games in the final five they're, they're using mm. a, a, a slightly different version being a Hawthorne supporter I was very very spoilt um, and being very familiar with the second semi-final of the McIntyre final yep. five which was always the, the prestige final I was um, sitting uh, on the half forward flank of VFL Park in 1989 one of my earliest memories of watching Hawthorne players Burton's hip and shoulder on Vanderhaar right in front of us which I think it was only in the second quarter but every Everybody knew from that point that we were going to go through and play in yet another grand final. So that, that's my only real uh, observation that they're playing. They've, there are five teams in the finals and they'll play games of cricket against each other in, in the next few days and then one team will be the winner. That is very succinctly summarised, Adam. In fact, the Sydney Thunder are playing the Hobart Hurricanes right now, even as we're recording. They've made 197 the Thunder and the Hurricanes one for 59 off six in reply. So they're going along at about 10 and over, which is what they need. Alex Hales made runs for the Thunder and um, Darcy Short's still out there for the Hurricanes. So this will be very out of date by the time this podcast goes up. But, but. it's happening and that and that's the fifth, the fourth playoff, I guess, and then then. It'll be four on four or, or something like that. I We're just, not really paying attention, just, let's be honest. I just hope they all have a nice time and everyone yeah. enjoys themselves and people watch it on TV and or, or not and, and go or, or not and everyone just enjoy it. While the Australian men's team are well and truly out of the picture until 
fucking April or something. I hope that between times yeah. uh, people get their get their get their fill out of the big bash league. Uh, they might have got their fill, Jeff, out of that crazy finish in the T uh, Twenty International played yesterday between India and New Zealand. Mm. It, it secured India a, a clean sweep, three 0 But um, another super over lost to New Zealand. I didn't see it, but you had a look at the card, Jeff. Well, I, I had a look at a bit of it while it was going on. Actually, you know, Kane Williamson was batting in God mode, so they were chasing 179, decent enough total. Williamson, 95 off 48 balls, so he was going at nearly 200 for his strike rate, um, but his false shot percentage was 12%, which is lower than most players in test cricket, like the average for a, <laughs> for a specialist batsman in test cricket. He was doing that while hitting eight sixes and Jesus. just going... Uh, absolutely feral in the most composed possible way. He was on 95. He should have got a ton and, and won the match. He hit a six in the last over. They needed three off five balls. And then Williamson got out. Mohamed um, Shami had him caught. With three balls left, Tim Seifert had a couple of swings and misses. They ran a bye. Ross Taylor had to face the last ball, needing two runs to win and got clean balls. And so they went into the super over. Williamson and Gupsel took 16 from Jasper Boomer, which is a win in itself. And then Williamson pulls Tim Southey into bowl the super over, who'd gone at 10 and over in, in the match itself. Um, and he duly went for 20 to lose it with sixes from the final two balls to Rohit Sharma. So absolutely ridiculous finish. Um, and New Zealand do not like the one over eliminator I, I think we can say evidently Jeff uh, that's enough from us I reckon uh, thanks to Neil Manthorpe mm. for being part of the final word to give us a bit of insight as to the problems of South African cricket it's been great having you back with us we'll be back again next week for much of the we same uh, it's uh, been lovely having you back down the line I'm glad you're refreshed and fit and firing and ready for another year of the final word uh, and ready for I think the new segment might get wheeled out next week I think is the stat man be a ba 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 So stay tuned, stay primed, and uh, stay final. And indeed, thanks to, again to Future Talent um, for their um, help with us over the last three months. They've been amazing. Thanks to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. I had to go about it.